Okay. Exodus chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. If you're physically able, will you stand with me this morning as we read from God's holy word? Verse 31. It says, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of Jeroboam. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. That's the word of the living God. Will you be seated, please? Thank you so very much for standing with me. We've talked about time and again, and we're making our journey now. We've come now to the seven pieces of the tabernacle. There are seven pieces. And uh, the first one we've talked about was the bronze altar, the brazen altar, then the bronze laver, the bronze laver. And then when you make your way into the holy place, we find the table of the showbread, the presence of God. Across from it, we find the lampstand. And then just before you go into the inner part called the most holy place within the holy place just before you walk in we have the altar of incense the golden altar and just be just behind the golden altar of incense is the veil and that's what we're studying and looking at this morning there's a veil of separation between the holy place and the most holy place and once you enter into the most holy place behind the veil there we find the last two pieces of furnishings which would be the ark of the covenant and the Ark of the Covenant, laid over the Ark of the Covenant, is the seventh piece of furniture, which is the mercy seat. Hallelujah. And last week we took a look at the Ark of the Covenant. We took a look at the contents inside the Ark of the Covenant. And we're just on the heels of the prelude of going into to see what the mercy seat is all about, what, it, what it's a picture of, and the presence of God hovering above that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat covering the contents in there that would bring about nothing but judgment were that mercy seat not over the contents. Because the contents within it, you recall, would be the manna that was a sampling of the manna that they were fed when they went into the wilderness in a golden pot, then Aaron's rod that budded, and then also the Ten Commandments. And if there were no lid on there and we looked in there, we would see nothing but God's law. And God's law exposes us to be nothing but lawbreakers. And lawbreakers deserving God's righteous judgment. But God put a lid on it. Hallelujah. And that lid's called the mercy seat. And that's a picture of his son who came in between God's righteous judgment. And we'll talk about that later. And our sin and the judgment it deserves and granted us mercy for those who repent toward God and put faith in his son. Remember the outline of the gospel. God's a just God, but he's also a savior. Hallelujah. 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 Well, as we go into there and look and we see the veil that separates the two, those are one of three hangings. Now, we waited until we got to this point to talk about this. We could have talked about it uh, when the, the very opening of the gate of the tabernacle, but right now is the time of the place to address this. But there were three hangings in the tabernacle. The first one was when you walked in the, the door of the tabernacle. 
the very outer court door of the tabernacle of the tabernacle proper. That was the only entrance there, and we made the case, and we talked about it time and again. Of course, that is very clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and that He's the gate, the doorway. The word shepherd means doorway. We have access to God only through Him, and so the doorway, the the entrance there is the gate of the court, and the the size of that, the dimensions of that gate, and what it's talked about there is in Exodus chapter 27 and verse 16. That's the first one. That's the only entrance, the gate at the entrance of the court. Then there's an outer veil. That outer veil is hanging in front of the door of the tent. And the outer veil, once you go into the main entrance and you go past the bronze altar and you go past the bronze laver and you come to the holy place here, there's a hanging there that separates the outer court from the holy place. And that's the inner veil. I mean the outer veil. It's in front. I mean the bronze laver is positioned in front of it. It's the hanging for the door of the tent. It is a place beyond which depicts fellowship with God. The relationship is purchased at Calvary, symbolic of the bronze altar. But the fellowship is predicated upon, the fellowship is sustained and fed off of holy living. And we stop by the bronze laver and we have a washing of the word. And we confess and repent of things that God's brought up in our lives that are, uh, that are, uh, that are there, unrepentant sin, the things that he makes us aware of in our lives. And we wash by the word. We take the washing in order to move into a place of deeper fellowship and intimate fellowship with our God. So that inner veil separates the labor between that the labor and the place of that inner, intimate fellowship. So it's proper, it's right that the bronze labor will be right before it because you have to take some washing before you get in there. Then we come to the place of our focus here. The third hanging here this morning is the inner veil. And this is the one we want to focus on this morning. That's the inner veil and that's the one where the arrow is pointing to there. And you'll see that in the, the holy place you see the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense, the golden altar, and just before you move into the most holy place, there is the veil that we want to focus on this morning. It's the inner veil. It's the inner veil, and it has woven into it the cherubim. The cherubim also appear on top of the mercy seat. But you'll see them pictured there, and they're facing one another with their wings outstretched to one another, and they're looking down. In the scriptures, it seems that the visions that we get and the revelation that we get about the cherubim in Scripture are they are guardians and protectors of the holiness of God. You know what, if there's one thing that we've lost sight of as Christians is the fact that God's holy. The reason God's eternal is because He's holy. The reason God is righteous is because He's holy. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, circumference of His character, if you will, that makes everything within the character of God hold together possible and real and eternal. God is holy. And the only way to come into God's presence is to be holy. And we are born into sin and we're very much unholy. So, so something, if we have every, any promise of approaching God, something's got to change and it's not going to be God. Something's got to change and it's not going to be God. God is holy. Think about it. When, when Isaac or when... Um, when Isaiah came in contact with the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And the Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he begins to give a description of the cherubim 
above, hovering above the throne of God. And they're calling out over and over again from time and eternity all the way to eternity future. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Guardians of the holiness of God. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter um, 3 and verse 24, they were placed at the, at the entrance of the garden when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, protecting the way to the tree of life because they were protecting the way of holiness. Nobody gets in unless they're made holy. We're all unholy. Something's got to change, and that something is not going to be God. Something's got to change, but God's not going to change. God's not going to concede. God's not going to give up His holiness in order to have fellowship with us. If He did, He would die. God is holy. That's what makes Him eternal. That's His essence. That's His nature. He is separate from everything that is sin, everything that is rebellion, everything that is counter to Him, everything that is an affront to His glory. God is very much high and lifted up, separate from all of that. Prophet number one sees God in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth was not, God, this is Isaiah reporting for duty. Aren't you grateful to see me? Prophet number one. What's the first thing he says out of his mouth? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That word woe, from which the Hebrew word from which that's translated, is the worst sort of damnation that there is. Basically what he did was he looked up, saw the holiness of God, and the only thing that he could see about himself was his unholiness, and he said, condemn me to hell. I need to die right now. I've seen God. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He was a prophet. The cleanest thing about him was his lips. It's been said before, and I think it was Oswald Chambers that said this, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. And the, 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 the cleanest thing about his lips, about his whole body, was his lips, because he was a prophet. And when he spoke, it was God speaking. And the very thing that was his greatest strength, he assigned it as being his greatest weakness in light of a holy God. And said, kill me, condemn me to hell, I've seen God, he's holy, I'm not. Kill me. I deserve His righteous judgment. Gives us a little insight of what it's going to be like at the, at the, uh, at the great white throne judgment. There's, no, there's not going to be any wrangling back and forth about the fact that this isn't fair, this isn't right. Everybody's going to concede. You know what? I'm a sinner. You're holy. I deserve what I'm going to get. What does God do? Hallelujah, hallelujah. He sends an angel to go over and take a coal from the altar and he touches his mouth with it and he says, I cleansed you preview of coming attractions where God would one day spill his son's blood on the cross of Calvary in order to purchase even Isaiah. And the next thing he says was, go, I'll send you. I'll send you. We've lost any sight or appreciation or reverence for the fact that God is holy. And so think about this. While the priests are over there and they're doing their work and they're looking in there and they've got an eye toward the most holy place, and they're kind of doing their routine, and they're in there with the bread, and they're getting ready to feed the bread to themselves, and they're ready to burn the incense, and they're tending to the lamp to make sure it's fully oiled so the light's ever burning and illuminating the inside. And they're looking over there, and what they're looking at is they're in the shadow of the two cherubim, and it's a constant reminder before them that what you are doing is holy. What you are doing is holy. And there are the guardians to the way of the holiness, the protectors of the holiness of God. And beyond that, they had an imagination, surely, to think, what's beyond there? What does it look like in there with God's glory in there? What's it like in there? But we know that only one time, once per year, could the priest go in there on the Day of Atonement. 
And they dare not go in there because they go in there and make sure death. Sure death. Because why? The unholy would come in contact with the holy. And something's going to change. And I promise you it's not going to be God. It's not going to be God. It is a compromise that for anybody in any time, shape, or structure, or form, or fashion. Because that's his nature. So this veil business is separation. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word from which the word veil is translated is the word, it means separate. It means that what goes on in here, there's a separate spot. There's a separate place of intimacy and fellowship in there beyond that veil. And it was, a, it was a put up there to protect those priests, to protect men from going into a place that if they entered into, it would be at their peril. It was a separation. It was like no... Nothing beyond here. There's no way. There's no access. There's no fellowship. You can't get beyond here unless something changes. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Those three words are symbolic of these three veils. The first veil is... I am the way. He's the only way into the tabernacle. That's the outer veil. Then when he said, I am the truth, what have you got to stop by before you can go in the second veil? You've got to stop by the bronze laver. What is the bronze laver a picture of? It's a picture of the Word of God. What is the Word of God? Truth. Truth. So I am the way, first covering, the first hanging, second one, I am the truth. And let me ask you this. Where is the only place in the tabernacle where there's life? Think about this. Outside it, let's get into the gory details. It was nothing but a bloody place. There was, that was a place where the blood of rams, goats, and bulls was continuously spilt out there in the outer court of that tabernacle with the bronze laver and the bronze altar. It was a bloody, bloody place. There was nothing but death there. There was death and judgment upon the substitute in our place. And so it was a bloody place. Where's the only place where it's found life? Beyond the third hanging. That's when you go into the place where the presence of God is. And God is life. Amen. So those, that, when Jesus said that in John 14, 6, he was talking about these three hangings. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Hallelujah to His holy name. But you know what? At this time, the way of God had not yet been made manifest. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. You know what? We're going to just look through verses 2 through 8 to kind of get a feel for the whole narrative here. But you know what? We read from this last week. But we're going to go a little bit further beyond where we went last week. The way to God had not yet been made manifest. Why? What we're saying is, is when you went into the inner place, into the holy place, all you could see was the veil. All you could see was the cherubim and the intricately woven veil that was there. It was beautiful. And it was a constant reminder that beyond that, no one dare go. No one dare go. There's, I don't know what's beyond that, but all I know is this. There's a holy God represented by His presence there. And when unholy comes in contact with holy, unholy dies because God is not going to change. Somebody is, but not God. What does the Bible say about Jesus? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Okay, watch this. Now let's look at this. Speaking of this earthly sanctuary, it says, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, that second veil is what we're talking about here this morning, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these we cannot now speak in detail. And now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always, always, now look at that word, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle. That was part of their service. They were constantly going in to the first part and ministering and constantly in that place of fellowship, which is a symbolic of the fellowship that's provided for by the cross of Christ to a holy God. But the deep intimacy and moving into the presence of God, that was once a year. Into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. And this is where our, the title for our series came from. He went not without blood. He dare not go in there without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, watch this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. You know what that means? The veil was in place and intact in that tabernacle and later on in the temple until something radically changed. Something radically changed. Hallelujah. 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 The way had not yet been made manifest. It was a preview of coming detractions. It was a shadow. It was a preview of what would one, God would one day do on Calvary's Hill through the substitutionary atoning work of His Son in sacrifice there. So the way had not yet been made manifest. But look what happens here. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Dear brothers and sisters, if you've repented toward God and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you and I can enter the most holy place where a holy God resides in his presence by a new and a living way and we can do it boldly. Let me just say this to you. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, to walk in that place, that one consecrated day per year? Could you imagine what it must have been like for him to hold the veil, uh, the uh, vessel of blood? Because here's what's running through his mind. If we didn't do this right, if this wasn't done according to the prescribed order, if we didn't pick the right bull, or we didn't pick the right goat, if we didn't pick him from the right part of the flock, the firstborn, the unblemished one, and if I walk in here and I'm not fully washed and consecrated, and we mess up in any way, do you know what's going to happen to him? He's going to walk in there beyond that veil one time per year, and he's probably shaking like a leaf. I would have been. I would have been. And you're walking into the presence of holy God, and you're trying to... Determine in your mind, and you're rolling over in your mind over and over again. Man, did we do this right? Did we, did we, let me just run this over again. Was this done right? Because the only thing he could expect 
if something was done wrong, was God's judgment. And he would drop to the floor of that most holy place just like that, just as soon as he came in contact with the holiness of God. So he's walking in there shaking like a leaf. He's walking in there with trepidation. He's walking in there with fear. He's gripped by fear. But I'm going to tell you something. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the Bible says we can boldly walk in. We can have confident access. You know why? We can have confident access because God did it right. See, that was dependent upon what they were going to do to make sure they walk in. You know what? People try to walk in the presence of God all the time with a veil or a bowl full of their own righteousness. And they want to walk in there in the presence of God. And you know what? They ought to be afraid. And they ought to be shaking. It ought to be with fear. It ought to be with great apprehension. Because if you try to walk into the presence of God with a bowl full of your own righteousness, I'll assure you you're going to be struck down immediately. This is why we need to be witnessing the gospel. This is why we need to be and live and preach and teach and walk and talk and be consumed with the gospel. Because that's what everybody's going to do, absent Christ. They're going to dare to walk into His presence one day in judgment. And when they get there, they're not going to get a shred of mercy from Him. They're going to get nothing but judgment. It's all judgment for the unrepentant. It's all mercy for the repentant. Please tell your friends, family, and neighbors, come to the life-giving water of Jesus Christ before it's too late. Because one day it will be. And when they walk in there with their good works and they walk in there thinking, boy, did I do it right? Did I have it right? Was I born into the right family? Did I speak the right thing? Did I work enough? Was I moral enough? Was I good enough? Will, you, will, will the good make up for the bad? And they walk in there in His presence and they're shaking like a leaf. I want you to know something. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. This isn't going to sit well with some of you. But the Bible says in Psalms that the God is angry with the wicked Every day. The Hebrew from which that's translated means foaming at the mouth. So you could say it this way. God is foaming at the mouth, angry with the wicked every day. He's a just God. Oh, but friends, He's also a Savior. Amen? Amen? And we can walk into His presence. It was a barrier. We had reason to be afraid. But look what the Bible dares say right now. Look what it has the, look what it has the, the, the boldness to say to you and I. Therefore, brethren, having what? Boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We can walk in there having followed the trail of Jesus Christ on the cross who took His blood from Calvary, walked into the inner place, and God said, Satisfied. Debt is paid, paid in full. Lindsay, you could come in. Hallelujah. And every other one who has repented toward God and put their faith in His Son. What a great work of salvation God's done. We can come boldly. Why? Because of our good work? Because of our reform? Because we, did, we trusted Christ and then went out and lived a good life? No, we have one access. We have one ticket. We have one way to get in. And friends... Dear ones, it's holy enough. Hallelujah. And it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So what is this veil business? It was made up of white, blue, scarlet, and purple fabric was woven intricately, 
the one inside the tabernacle was thick. We don't know how thick, but the one inside that wound up in the temple was three inches thick. So it was a little small, thin sheet. It was an interwoven, intricate, heavy, beautiful veil that God instructed them to build and craftsmen and gifted them to do it. The white is a symbol of the purity and the righteousness of Jesus. The blue is a symbol of the fact that he came from heaven. The scarlet is symbolic of his blood. And the purple is symbolic of the fact that he's king. Royalty. Amen. Hallelujah. 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 And the veil, I want you to look at this. And I want you to consider it this way. And maybe you might not have ever considered it this way before. The veil is a type of the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It is a picture of his sinless, perfect humanity. It is heresy to say that Jesus is not fully God. And it's equal heresy to say that he didn't become fully man. Jesus is the infinite God-man. He is God who became a man. He was 100% God and 100% man. It was the miracle of the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we talked about it when we first started studying the tabernacle. You can literally say the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what that word means. It tabernacled among us. God made good on His promises. Hallelujah. And He tabernacled among us. But let me tell you where that comes from. Look at uh, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Let's look at it again. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us, what? Through the veil that is His flesh. So the veil is a picture of the sinless humanity of Jesus Christ. What's beyond his sinless humanity? Well, let's turn to Luke 9. Turn to Luke 9 with me. What's beyond his, what's, what's underneath? What's on the other side of his sinless humanity? Look at Luke chapter 9, if you will. And let's look in verse 27. This is the account of the transfiguration. Jesus is with his disciples and he takes three of them to go up on top of a mount to see him in all his glory. Look what it says in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He said, wait a minute. Every last one of those died a martyr's death that were following him. And they're not going to taste they're not going to taste death until they get to see the kingdom. Well, he was talking about the event that was just about to happen. He said, you know, some of you are going to get to see the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ doesn't take us to the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God. And look what happens here. It says, Now it came to pass about eight days later after these sayings that he took three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Well, we talked about it time and again. Who do Moses and Elijah stand for right there? The Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is standing there with the New Testament Jesus, who they were designed and written to reveal, and they're having this discussion, and he has transfigured himself. And you know what he did? He took his human flesh and he parted it. His veil. He took off the veil. And what do you see on the other side? The presence and glory of God. What's on the other side of that veil right there? 
the presence and glory of God. They got to see what's in heaven itself because they got to see Jesus Christ in all of His glory. What illuminates heaven? The Lamb is the light of heaven. There's no need for sunlight and there'll be no darkness in heaven. Why? Because it's illuminated by Jesus Christ Himself. They got to see the kingdom. They got to see heaven because He took the shroud of His flesh that covered His glory and He just took it off for just a little bit and let Him see Him, let them see Him in all of His glory exactly the way He is and forever will be. Praise His holy name. His veil is His flesh. As long as He's alive on this earth, as long as He's alive on this earth, there's no communion beyond that veil though. There's no hope for you and I, common people, to get in there. Or anybody else for that matter. There's no hope to go beyond the veil as long as He's alive. Because as long as He's alive, the will and the, tes the testimony of the will cannot be doled out. It can't be, um, uh, what, what's the word, probated. You can't probate the will until there's a death of the one who's the testor of the will. And so as long as he's alive, there's no access. But look what happened. Look what happened. Hallelujah. You know where this is going. Look what happened when his human flesh was crushed on the cross of Calvary. Look here. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Go with me over there. Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to be looking in verses 45 to 51. This is Jesus on the cross. And look what happens. Now the sixth hour, which was twelve noon, up until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, it put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And look what happened in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. From top to bottom, the three-inch thick veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place as soon as Jesus Christ died on the cross was torn by the hand of God from top to bottom. And now what does that mean? Access for the likes of me and you. Hallelujah. His body was torn in two. His body was not torn in two by the Roman guards. His body was not torn in two by an angry, angry religious crowd that was fueled by their envy of his life, that they could not attain by their works. It was not torn in two by that. It wasn't torn in two by mob rule. It wasn't torn in two by things that got out of control. It wasn't torn from the bottom to the top. It was torn from the top to the bottom. And the reason it was torn from the top to the bottom is because God crushed his son under the weight of his, of his uh, judgment on him so that you and I as believers will never incur it. Hallelujah to his name. The same hand... The same hand that formed and fashioned and created you were the same hands that crushed God's dear Son on behalf of you and I. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. God set forth His Son. Don't let anybody ever tell you that it was anyone but the righteous judgment of God that imposed this kind of penalty on His Son. It wasn't men that did this. 
It was God that did this. God and His offended, righteous nature, offended by your and mine, our sinful rebellion, placed on His precious Son, on that crown of that precious brow of that head. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord has put him to grief. It pleased the Lord to do that. That God crushed his blessed, precious son. That's why it was torn from top to bottom. Could you imagine what it was like during the Passover time, which is when this happened? And the priests were in there serving in the tabernacle. And there were people out there all over the place in the temple. And they were there praying. And all of a sudden, and they look up and they see something they've never seen before their entire life. Only a select few ever got to see what was on the other side of that veil. They looked over there and there's the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what that signified? That signified the end of a mediatory priesthood. That said it's over. God said it's done. We don't need a man. We don't need a go-between. I'm the go-between. I'm the perfect bridge from an offended God and sinners like you and I. And Jesus made the bridge between us and made peace with God. And now we can have the peace of God because the Son of God died in our stead and open up us to the very presence of God Himself. Hallelujah. And we could go boldly and approach Him. Can you imagine what a sight that must have been? Tradition says they tried to put it back together again. They were unsuccessful in doing so. They could not do it. They tried their best to sew it back together again. They're still trying to sew it back together again. The Jews are still trying to do it. And they can't do it. Even the Christmas time story. I've been My personal Bible time now has been in Luke chapters 1 through 4. I've been reading it over and over and over again. I've had a wonderful time there. And it's told that the, sh the shepherds that Amber, the angels came and informed them of the great news of a coming Savior who's been born this day in the city of David. That those shepherds were responsible for raising the sheep that were used in temple worship. And the reason he appeared to them was, he said, guys, float a resume. Your job is over. God has provided a lamb. Amen. 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 And when he tore that veil from top to bottom, the hand of God, only God could have done that. When God tore that veil from top to bottom, he was saying, you know what, priests? Go home. You're no longer necessary. We've got a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek who's eternal. And he is at the Father's right hand and he ever lives to make intercession for me. Did you know on the bottom of a Georgia state tax form, Michael's here, he works for the state of Georgia, on the bottom of a Georgia state tax form, have you ever filled one out? You know what it says on the bottom of the thing? It says, check if you're deceased. Have you ever, have you ever, have you, has anybody noticed stuff like that? I said, check if you're deceased. If you're dead, check. I'm thinking, well, I wonder, I bet they prayed a bureaucrat $200,000 a year to come up with that. See, the priesthood was inferior. You know why? You know why? Because priests had a tendency to do something that we all have a tendency to do. You know what it was? It was just a habit of theirs. You know what they would do? They'd die. They just had a habit of dying. Sooner or later, they're going to die. But we've got an eternal priesthood. Jesus Christ and he's never going to die that's the reason believer if you're a believer and you've repented toward God and put your faith in Jesus Christ you are sealed forever hallelujah 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 
If you're not sealed, that means that Jesus Christ has got to die. And He's not going to die. God put earnest money on you. You know what earnest money is? Some of you bought real estate lately? You put money down on a piece of property. If the deal falls through, you get to keep the money, right? The Holy Spirit is God's earnest money. The Bible says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and He's earnest money. He deposits the Holy Spirit in your heart. If God doesn't come through on the deal of your salvation, you get to keep the Holy Spirit. Think that through for a minute. I think God's going to come through on the deal, don't you? You think? Saints are perfected forever. You're either a saint or an ain't. If you're a saint, it's a done deal. Amen? All right, here's how we... Let me give you some application here and we'll hang up. It was hung up by four golden pillars. Do you see them there? Four golden pillars. Think quickly. Think quickly. What are the four pillars upon which the body of truth that we know, upon which the truth that we know about the humanity of Jesus Christ rests? What does it rest on? In other words, that's a sorry way to ask the question. What body of truth in the Bible do we have for us that tells us the four pillars upon which the humanity, His identity of Jesus Christ rests? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hallelujah. It's the Gospels. And it shows the humanity of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this time and again. He's the King of the Jews from Matthew. The theme of Mark is He's a suffering servant. And then the theme of Luke is he's the son of man, the perfect man. And the theme of John is that he's God. And every bit of that veil rests on those four pillars because that's the humanity of Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God. If that's so, and that is, you ever notice when a phrase goes, is recurred in the Bible, you know, over and over again? If, if God says something one time, that's important, Ray. Would you agree? But if he bothers to say it four times or three, it ought to kind of get our attention, hasn't it? Okay, turn with me, if you will to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll close after this, verses 22 through 25. You see, if you're, if you're deceased, you can't check the block. Did y'all, are y'all with me? You said, did y'all get that? Okay, if you're deceased, you can't check the block. And so if you're dead, why, why would you ask the question? If you're deceased, check the block. And Jesus is alive forevermore. The priest had a tendency to die. Our living Lord is alive forevermore. You're sealed forever. Hallelujah to His name. Now, if that's true, that ought to affect the way we live. Can I say this right here? And we've talked about this before, but can I herald this and just throw this across the bow for you and just just encourage you with this? Belief precedes change and not the other way around. You don't change and then believe. You believe, and because of your belief, you change. And that's why this is so important to understand this. And so the change that that should bring about, the practical application is found in Hebrews 10, and let's look at it in verses 22 through 25. He concludes with all of this. I want you to pay attention to the words, let us. The words, let us. Now, Ray, that's where we were going. We said if God says something one time, that's important. He says it two times. Mm-hmm. Says it three. Wow. Okay. Well, he bothers to say it four times here. I want you to look at the let us. Because we come in by a new and living way. 
that He has set apart for us to go into the presence of God with no barrier. No barrier. What once was a barrier is now a gate because it's been torn from top to bottom by God Himself. And He has said, The windows of heaven are open. Come in! Come in! All ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're thirsty, come drink from here. This is an eternal and a living way. Come in! Come in! Come in! The invitation is open. And because of that, there are four things, four applications here. The first one is this. We should be cleansed for worship. Number one, we should be cleansed for worship. Look at this. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What do you think that's symbolic of? Having us washed with pure water. What is that symbolic of? The laver. It's the bronze laver. The washing of the water. The continual washing and confession and repentance of sin. Just that cycle of saying, Lord, if you, if you convict me, and you, now, now, let me tell you the difference between conviction and condemnation. The, the difference between conviction and condemnation is, is condemnation is from the devil and conviction is from the Lord. And when the Holy Spirit convicts you, it's specific. He doesn't say, you know what, Brian, you're as sorry as a day is long. And I just can't stand you. You're worthless. Look at your track record. And you expect God to bless and give you favor and walk with you? The likes of somebody like you? That's the devil. That's condemnation. Let me tell you what conviction is, Brian. You had a sorry attitude toward your friend in that conversation. And you sinned against me. Brian, you gossiped. You shared something with somebody else without ever bothering to go talk to them about it first. That is specific. It is gentle. It's not, not, it's not ugly. It's not loud. But it's specific. Okay? And we start listening to and responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You know, you've got unforgiveness in your heart toward Chad. Get rid of it, son. I've forgiven him. I've forgiven you. You forgive him. You've got bitterness in your spirit. You've got a, you, you, you've got, you've gossiped. You're just robbing from me. Your tithes and offerings. On it goes. Those are specific things that the Holy Spirit speaks. And let us, let us be washed by the Word. The Holy Spirit exposed that and prepare us for worship. I don't, that doesn't mean corporate worship. It means private worship. 24-7 worship. Offering up our bodies as living sacrifices. That's the first let us. The second one is this. We should have a confession before the world that does not waver. It means that because we're convinced that we're studying earthly truth in order to discern heavenly truth, that we're convinced of these things, we should have a profession of faith before the world that does not waver. Look at the next verse. Let us, that's the second let us, watch this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. You do that by things like Nancy did this morning when God gave her a clear word from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that says, I will never, I will never, I will never, I will never, I will never leave you or forsake you. I believe that, and I'm going to act upon it because God is able. You're not going to talk me out of that, 
You're not going to discourage me. I'm going to listen to what God says, not the promptings of my flesh, not the promptings of my circumstances, and certainly not from others who've not sought Him about this like I have. I'm just not going to do it. I have a profession of faith in a lost world that says we're not going to concede and we're not going to give ground. Jesus is not a good way to heaven. He's the only way to heaven. We're not going to give up that. This coexist business is damnable doctrine. There's one way to God. It's through Jesus Christ. That's it. The way of the cross leads home. It's sweet to know as I onward go that only the way of the cross, but the way of the cross leads home. We are not going to concede that. We've got a profession that we're going to stick with. We are not going to compromise it. We're going to lovingly stand on it. And if we have to, we'll die for it. Not in order to obtain it, but because we have obtained it. So first, we need to, we need to be cleansed for worship. Second, we need to be, have a confession before the world that does not waver. And third, we need to exhort others. That's what happened here this morning. We had that happen here this morning. That was an exhortation to trust God at a different level and a different and a more intimate walk. Just this morning, from the praises that were uttered and things that God had spoken, you've had private conversations today that did this. Maybe, maybe you have conversations with believers, you know, back and forth, encouraging. Chad and I have got something going on with in our email, going back and forth, batting around something that. Uh, we were looking into it in Scripture. That's our exhortation. Encourage one another. Let's go into the Word. Let's dig deep and see what's there. Let's, let's ferret it out. Let's see where those jewels are beneath the surface. And let's, let's see what the Word has to say. Let's encourage one another to look there. Let's direct one another there. Let's exhort one another daily. Let's encourage one another daily. Why, it's still called today. Look what the Bible says. This is the third, let us. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You know what we're to do? Then inside the church, instead of catching people doing other things that we can criticize them for, let's start catching people for love. Why don't we start looking for a way when love is manifesting? Let's catch that and let's encourage people when it's done. Let's exhort and encourage one another for the kind of love. I was so blessed yesterday because, you know what? I mean, I mean if. You know what, Josh, if you want to, don't get upset at me, buddy, but I want you to know something. I washed you yesterday. Uh, when I was there, I had to go off and get the washer, but I washed, watched you, and I watched you work tirelessly around that place. I want you to know that I was blessed by that. And that was an act of love and service and devotion that honored your God. And surely did bless me as your pastor. I want you to know that. And, you know, we need to encourage. That's the kind of stuff that needs to be encouraged. That's where Jesus is shown. That's where he's lived out. That's where he's seen. And we need to encourage one another with that. We need to build one another up. Build up the body of Christ. Look for ways to encourage. And stir one another up to love and good works. Why should we stir one another for love and good works? Because the only thing that God says that distinguishes us as being marked out for his own is the fact that we have love for one another. So first, let us... Be cleansed for worship. Second, let us have a confession before the world that does not waver. Number three, let us exhort one another and stir one another up for good and good works. And number four, let us not forsake to worship together. Look what it says. Here's the fourth, let us. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching, the day of God's judgment, His return. 
There's 60 something commands in the New Testament that cannot be obeyed outside being involved in the life and witness of a local church. The kind of extra, the kind of communion that we have, we're not gold alone Christians. We're not islands unto ourselves. We're a part of the body of Christ. Every part of the body of Christ is needed. Every part is necessary. Every part serves a certain function. And every part comes together to do what it's called to do. It's their part in the body of Christ so that the only person that gets the glory is Jesus. Because it takes all of us, not just one or two or three. Can I say this to you? Throw away and do away with the lie, whoever you are, that you are not necessary and you're not wanted and needed and called by God to be a part of a local fellowship called the church. And don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because this is where it's fleshed out. This is where it's manifest. This. Why? Because we're convinced of the truth that we've seen in the Old Testament, manifested in the New Testament by the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We went long. I'm sorry. I want you to know this is important stuff. Let us, let us, let us.